We're in Psalm 26 this evening. And as we go to Psalm 26, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we turn to your, to your word, Father God, help us to understand and to see that you are the one that we need to trust in, Father God. Lord, this, this world and the way that we walk in this world, um, there's dark and treacherous paths. Our foot will slip. Father, as easy as it is to run to the coffee table when the room is pitch black, is as easy as it is to trip and stumble as we try to traverse this life without your light, Father God. Help us to be sure-footed as we trust in you and we look to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So hiking, like any other outdoor sport, comes with um, inherent risk, right? Everybody knows that if you go hiking, there is risk involved. And there's more risk involved if you're here in the southwest region because we have all sorts of creepy crawler critters and things that bite and all sorts of stuff that'll just swell you up all nice. And then there's that treacherous sun as well. But... When you're hiking, it's not the flat, easy paths that bring you the most danger. They're not the ones that require the caution. It's the path that is wrought with twists, turns, inclines, loose rocks, other terrain that creates instability below our feet as you traverse the landscape. You have to have balance and the ability to remain upright, and it's going to be tested by any number of things while you're on that trail. And you need to be sure-footed so that you can walk the path and remain upright. Just as being sure-footed is necessary on hiking trails, though, it is needed in our spiritual walk as well. Life is fraught with hazards that we have to navigate while we remain upright. We need to develop that sure-footedness spiritually, just like we need to physically if we're going to go out hiking. Without it, we will fall. How do we react in some of those things that cause us to fall? How do we react when someone takes advantage of us? How do we react when things that we don't feel we deserve happen to us? How do we react... When things don't go our way, when things happen to us, when someone else manipulates us, when we get ripped off, when we feel betrayed, when we get falsely accused. You see, Psalm 26 is about that sure-footedness that David has as he faces these things. In fact, it's the first and the last verse that sandwiched this psalm that gives us the theme for this psalm. In verse 1, it says, David says, Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and entrusted the Lord without wavering. That word wavering indicates a slipping, a sliding, a shaking, stumbling. And then in verse 12, he says, My foot stands on level ground. In other words, he says, I remain grounded, firm-footed, balanced. And so as the Lord takes us through this psalm, we, we need to take a closer look and see how David was able to remain sure-footed throughout the troubles and trials of life so that we can follow that example and also remain sure-footed. Starting in verse 1, it says, Vindicate me, Lord, because I've lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with the hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord. Raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell. The place where your glory resides. 
Do not destroy me along with the sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed in whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hand are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. We're going to see several ways in which David walks sure-footed in in life. Because our goal, we we know that we we are going to stumble. We know that we're going to fall, but we don't want to remain fallen. We don't want to become injured when we fall. And so one of the ways he does that is the first thing is he walks with integrity. If you want to remain upright as things happen in your life, and you want to have that upright, that righteous example in your life, that righteous direction in your life, you have to learn to walk with integrity. In the first three verses, that's what David's talking about. He says, vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity. And I've trusted the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, try me, examine my heart and mind for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. Again, I think this psalm was written around the same time, maybe when Absalom was trying to seize the kingdom from David in which he's going through the land and to the different cities and garnering the support of the people by spreading lies about his father. As David looks to the Lord as this is going on, though, what do we do when people lie about us? Where do we go to get our defense for that? I can tell you that my natural inclination is to defend myself. But I've heard it said this way, you never want to wrestle with a pig because all he's going to do is take you into the mud and you're both going to end up dirty. And that's what happens when you try to defend yourself against slander. It, does, it doesn't work. You can't prove to someone something about your character. It has to be proven by the outside. And so David, he says, vindicate me, Lord. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to go get him. He says, Lord, you, you need to help me. He calls for the Lord to vindicate him. To vindicate, that word is just a fancy way of saying, Lord, judge justly. Give justice. Defend reputation. To seek to vindicate oneself, that's the same thing as walking up a steep incline that has nothing but shifting rock and loose dirt. It's a certain way to become on the floor. As you lose your balance. Sure footing is found only in calling for the Lord's vindication. And so David gives two reasons for the Lord to vindicate him. Not, not that he has to convince God to vindicate him. But he, he says two things to the Lord that the Lord can judge. Whether he's speaking justly or not. And the first one is he says, I've lived with integrity. And I'm going to give you a warning. Don't come before the Lord and say, I've lived with integrity if you haven't. Because he knows if you truly have, not just in front of people, but always. That word lived could also have been translated walked. It talks about a lifestyle. It talks about not a one and done decision like, well, I I did that good thing once. But it's a habit. It's a lifestyle of choosing integrity. And David was a man of integrity. And he's one of the few people in Scripture in which he was a man of integrity that was affirmed by God. In 1 Kings 9.4, it says, As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked with a heart of integrity and in what is right, doing everything I've commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. That was his promise to Solomon. But what a wonderful thing to have God say you lived with a heart of integrity. 
The second reason David gives for God to vindicate him is that he's trusted in the Lord. He doesn't trust in anything else. He trusts in the Lord. He put his confidence in the Lord. He's relying upon the Lord. He has his hope in the Lord. And so you see these two things working together throughout David's life. One is he's a man of integrity. He walks with integrity, but not just any integrity. It's his integrity of his faith in God. Now I've seen people who claim to have faith in God, but when the rubber meets the road, what you find out is they pull out all the stops. They call up all their friends. Hey, I need to borrow money or hey, I need to do this or I got to liquidate this or I got to go and take out a loan for this or, you know, any number of things that could have happened in their life that they, they think they have to fix themselves. David is one of those where something bad happens in his life. He's known as a man of God who trusts in God. And what you see him every time is he turns to God. He says, God, what are you going to do about this? He doesn't look at his problems as big problems. He looks at his God as a big God. And so David wants to be vindicated, not just to show that he's righteous and full of integrity, but his desire is to show God is faithful. He wants to show God is faithful to the one who trusts in him and lives according to him. See, David... His kingdom is, his rule and reign in the kingdom has been wrought with people trying to take it from him, hasn't it? Ever since the start, when God first anointed him and Saul was, remained in, in, on the throne for all those years, anyone could have said, well, maybe David wasn't really anointed. Maybe he's just wanting the kingdom. And then when David finally got on the throne, you go, oh, that's it. God's established him. Everybody's going to believe it. Well, then you have people that were still loyal to Saul. You had people, like, there were towns that David couldn't necessarily go to because they were still loyal to Saul and to Saul's household. And then you have the issues that happened in David's family and the issues that everybody knows about where David had that thing with Bathsheba and it wasn't necessarily a secret thing. It was a public thing. People knew about it. And so they start looking at David and they go, I don't know. And then you have what happened within his family and David didn't resolve it correctly and Absalom went out and handled it and then Absalom said, you know what? My dad doesn't deserve the throne and I'm going to go out and I'm going to convince the people to be against him also. And so David never seemed to actually be able to be comfortable sitting on the throne because somebody was always trying to take him off of it. But yet his trust was in God. If someone managed to pull him off the throne, he wouldn't try to get it back himself. He would wait for God to give it back to him. That's what he did with Saul. He knew that Saul was there until God removed him. And he was, he was completely content to wait and to allow God to do that. And so not only has he trusted and hoped in the Lord, but that hope that he has in the Lord has been unwavering and sure-footed. Then David even submits himself to the Lord. He says, test me, Lord. Try me. Literally, David is asking the Lord to put him to the test to ascertain the truth of his nature. It's very easy for us to, to appear very full of integrity and full of righteousness on the outside, right? The difficulty of integrity is when no one's looking. When no one's looking, that's when we discover how we really are. What if no one's going to find out? There's different ways that we can be an example of this in our families as well. What do we do when we find out that they didn't charge us at the grocery store as we're walking out? What do we do when we're walking out and we see money on the floor or a wallet on the floor or something, what, what do we do? We, well, we pick up the wallet, we check it for money, and then we take the wallet and we hand it in, right? And we put it all together, we, ha we take it, and we try to find the owner of it. Those are, those are tests of integrity. Those are things where we see our integrity. What do we do when God says, no, don't do that because my word says not to? If we're of integrity and we're of righteous integrity before the Lord, we follow what the Lord says. 
No matter who's trying to take us off of our throne, no matter who's trying to steal our blessing from us that the Lord has promised to us, we allow the Lord to defend us and vindicate us. And so David says, put me to the test, test my heart. What have I done, God? Have I tried to manipulate the situation to bring me back into the favor or do I wait on you? And so he uses a word that's literally borrowed from metallurgy. He says, test me and examine me and try me. And it's submitting to the testing of the furnace. The furnace that takes the metal and smelts it down to liquid that would reveal all the dross and all the imperfections. You see, it didn't matter to David what David said. What mattered and what always matters is what God determined of his heart and mind. It doesn't matter what we say of ourselves. It doesn't matter what other people say of us. Are we willing to submit and ask God what he says of us? The psalmist, Psalm 139.23, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. That is someone who is sure-footed. We stand sure-footed when we submit to God's testing and God's examining to vindicate us. So how can David and we be sure that God would vindicate us? How can we be sure that we can submit ourselves to God's examining and God's testing and know that we're going to be vindicated? Well, David says that there's two things that led him in life. Number one, he says God's faithful love is what guides him. God's covenantal love, God's chesed love is what leads him. His love is always before his eyes. God's love leads him in all his steps. Are we led by God's love? When things happen in our life, what is our thought process? Oh no, this happened because any number of things. God's mad at me. God hates me. God's unfair. God's unjust. Or do we say, wow, God, I don't understand it, but I know you love me. I know that you're working things out because you love me. It's your love that directs the things in my life. Not the things in my life that direct me and make me think you love me. You see, we need the Lord's examination. We cannot fear the furnace of trials that work to refine our faith. And like David, we have to also have the number two thing. And that is, I live by your truth. Because anytime something comes to slip us off our foot, that cause, comes to trip us up, we are immediately com confronted with a choice believe the lie, whether it's our own lie, our inner self talking to us, the devil on our shoulder whispering in our ears saying, see, God doesn't really love you. See, God is angry at you. See, you can live righteously and all, nothing will ever work. I, I can't tell you how many times as parents, we follow what the scripture says and how we're supposed to teach our kids. And when it turns around and it doesn't happen that way, we go, well, what the heck? Or there's times where in our interaction with adults, we're like, you know what? I'm going to take the path of, I'm, I'm going to submit myself to this. I'm, I'm going to act in love. And they respond with such ferocity. And we're faced with that choice. Are we going to live by God's truth? Or are we going to live by the truth that whispers in our ear and tells us, don't do that again? You don't need to be doing that. That's, that's not going to get you what you want. That's not going to get you where you're trying to go. God's way doesn't work here. God doesn't know this. God is ancient, okay? He's not modern. David says, I live by your truth. David doesn't say, I live by a truth. He doesn't even say, I live by our truth. He's purely led by God's truth. You see, as God's people, we walk with integrity when we're guided by his faithful love and live by his truth. In this walk, we walk with integrity with God and have the stability in our life because we're sure-footed in our faith in God 
And that's what carries us in all circumstances. The second thing David did to ensure sure footing was he seeks to be separate. We need to seek to be separate. Look at verse 4. David says, I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. So David affirms that he indeed lives by God's truth. And then David asserts that he seeks to be separate from certain people. David states he doesn't sit with the worthless. And that he seeks to be separate from those. And he doesn't associate with hypocrites. Now, David isn't defining these people as this. This is what scripture defines these people as. The way that their character is, the way that their choices are, the, way, the path of life that they're on. He seeks to be separate from those who are seen as worthless, those who would practice falsehood, a specific type of falsehood known as hypocrisy, in which what they say they are and what they act like are two different things. Those who would be wearing a mask. David seeks to be separate, and it's not just normal hypocrisy that we run into, but we're also talking spiritual hypocrisy. These are ones who claim to be holy, but the whole time living their life for the flesh. Seen one way in public, but in private they're completely different. Perhaps David in his mind He's thinking back to those whom he's seeking vindication from. Think about Absalom and and all the people that Absalom's raised up against David through slander. And now they're going through and they're slandering other people. And you have to remember that in that time, they didn't have many churches that they went to. There was one temple that everybody went to to go worship God. And as David, as king, even went in to go and worship amongst everybody else because we all come to God on the same level footing He sees them there. He knows how they treat him. He knows the lies that they're telling. He knows that they're not living truthfully. Yet here they are offering their praise and worship to God. How readily they lie about him and bring false testimony. Yet here they are in the tabernacle. They bring their burnt offerings in a state of hypocrisy and they're the ones that are described as worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. See, there's many who claim to be followers and devoted to God, but instead pursue ungodliness. Hypocrisy takes many forms in spiritual life, as we've talked about. And the most evident hypocrisy is that of not just tolerating sins of the flesh, but indulging sins of the flesh. Hypocrisy, however, can also be very deceptive and and, and creep in so quickly through things such as backbiting, gossiping, slandering. Spiritual hypocrisy is a life lived without integrity. Before God. So David not only lived with integrity before God, but he avoided those who lived with no integrity. David avoided spiritual hypocrisy by avoiding the hypocrites. We can do the same thing. We can avoid becoming hypocrites by avoiding being with those who are hypocritical. To avoid the slippery slope of hypocrisy, we must be sure-footed in integrity before God and in also separating from hypocrites. He says, I don't sit with them. This is someone who takes time and sits down amongst them. David says, I don't do that. I don't sit with them. These are not to be our close friends. If our close friends are guilty of slandering and gossiping and we haven't corrected them yet, we need to start separating from them. We need to correct them and we need to separate from them because what happens is it's 
far too easy to get sucked into it. And here's the quickest way that it happens. Oh, I heard a prayer request. We need to be praying for so-and-so. And then we put the details out there. There's two ways to do that correctly. Obviously, we can share prayer requests. But there's a way of sharing it in which we're like, let me tell you something that I know that you don't know about this other person. And we're going to pray for them. Pray for them. And we ruin their reputation before others because they were open and asked for prayer. So that's one group that he avoids. He avoids the hypocrites. David also strongly states that he hates a crowd of evildoers. And he will not sit with the wicked. David's separate from the hypocrite, but also from the evildoer and the wicked as well. And the description that he gives is, I hate their deeds. We need to develop that. When we see people that are out there and the Bible describes them as evildoers, we need to hate the deeds that are being done. Because when we start to hate the deeds that are being done, we won't be comfortable being around the group that's doing it. Because that's how it always happens. We first get comfortable because we start tolerating. And that's the world's number one lie right now is to tolerate their sin. And as we tolerate their sin, we become comfortable with it. We become anesthetized to it. And then we start sitting with them. And there, I can't tell you how many event, evangelism uh, tips, I guess you could say, are out there that say, well, you've got to sit and you've got to hang out with them. You've got to live their life first before you can speak into their life. And that's not true. That's a sure way to find yourself on a slippery slope, losing your footing. Sitting down with them connotates fellowship. It connotates approving fellowship. David didn't do this. We shouldn't do this either because there is no sure footing in fellowship with evil and the wicked. There's no way that you can have fellowship with darkness and stay on your feet. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I've always seen a picture of it in this way. Imagine the person who does wicked. They're standing on a table. Switch that around. The person on the, uh, that's doing wicked is on the floor and someone's standing on a table. What's easier, to pull someone up or to pull someone down? They're going to pull you down much faster than you're going to pull them up. David has in mind those who he chooses to associate with. All right? There's people that we have to interact with, right? We can't avoid it. Jobs, government, family members. We don't get to choose our family. We get to choose our friends, but we don't get to choose our family. And so David has in mind those that he gets to choose his association with, okay? We, we, we don't have control over most of the people that we interact with through work and other things like that. But the ones that we can choose, we have to be careful. We have to keep ourselves separate. One area in which we in modern times have to be more choosy is in our choices of entertainment. We choose to fellowship with evil through our entertainment choices. We usually choose poorly. You see, to find sure footing, you have to evaluate who and what we allow to entertain and to amuse us. What do we choose as examples and models? And as God exposes those, as we say, God test and examine, we need to choose to separate ourselves from them because they will become our idols that we eventually stumble and trip over. But don't think of being separate and seeking to separate yourself 
as only separating yourself from the world. We're not called to be separate from the world and live in our own little Christian bubble and be like the guy who's, who, when he went to church, they said, hey, how was your week? He thought it was great. I avoided all the sinners. And just when I thought I was about to encounter a sinner, I was able to turn the corner real quick and I avoided him entirely. And I had zero contact with anybody from the world for the whole week. We don't want to be those people. Because why? We carry the hope of Christ. The truth that there is forgiveness for our sins and that they don't have to remain wicked, evil people. They can come before Christ and ask for forgiveness and find salvation. But David also sought not only to be separated from the wicked, but he wanted to be separated unto God. In order to be separated unto God, David had to wash his hands in innocence. Anyone who seeks to be, to be separated unto God has to come with clean hands. You have to clean your hands from the sin and from the defilement. And David, he knows he's not innocent. He's not saying, God, I'm completely innocent. And neither should we. Never should we come before God on the basis that we're completely innocent. The only basis we come to God is if we're covered by the blood of Christ, who cleanses us from all sin. We have to cleanse ourselves from our sin to be separated unto God. We're in a time of history where people are probably washing their hands more than they ever have. It's a good time to remind ourselves that we receive the cleansing of our hands, not because we clean them ourselves. As I said, that cleansing comes from God's gracious provision of Jesus and his work on the cross. There's no other way to cleanse yourself. It's our responsibility to cleanse our hands, though, from the wicked actions, our mouths from the wicked words, our minds from the wicked thoughts, and our hearts from the wicked desires. 1 John, the Apostle John writes, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he Christ is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come and we confess that we are not innocent, that we are not clean, that's when we find the cleansing. When we try to declare ourselves clean, we are liars and we just remain unclean. And so David separated himself unto God. He cleansed his hands. And he also separated himself unto God through praise and worship. He raised his voice in thanksgiving. He went around telling of God's wondrous works. Did you know that you separate yourself unto God when you do that? When you proclaim the hands and the work of God in your life? When you become a spokesperson for God's faithfulness and all the things that he's done in your life and, and the way that he's transformed you, you separate yourself unto God. That's how you set your heart to God. Though David is seeking to be vindicated, David was still able to go around the altar worshiping God. How many times have we been kept out of church because something's going on in our life? We're upset about something. Something drastic's happened to us. We go, oh, I just can't be at church right now. And I don't know what it is. We, we have a lot of different reasons why we would stay out of church. We're like, well, I don't feel like telling that story to anybody. Oh, I'm still hurt by it or this or that. We have a lot of reasons not to come and worship and none of those reasons fit. Because the truth of the matter is, is there is no reason for us not to come before God in worship, separating ourselves unto him. Amen. Everything that happens in this life is temporary. But our relationship with God is forever. It's eternal. It will go on and on forever and ever. And then when we get to the end of that, it'll go on forever and ever more. One of the slipperiest paths is one where God might be taking things away from us. Mm 
Because when we present ourselves and we say, God, examine us, he may come and prune our life. The way to remain sure-footed is through praise and learning to thank God and say the Lord gives and takes away, but I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's not something that I come to and I say easily. He's taken me through those lessons. I'm not saying that I'm going to do it every time, but I am saying that I have learned that when I do come and I surrender, no matter what I'm going through, and I surrender and I say, God, you are good. God, I will trust you. He shows me. And you know where those words come from? They come from Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We need to come and have that sure footing is definitely found in being separated from evil. But it's just as definitely found in being separated to God. We find sure footing when we trust God. David says, Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed in whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. There are many things that we can choose to, to walk on and to stand on. But the number one thing, if you want to have sure footing, is to choose to stand upon the Lord. He is the only immovable rock, our sure foundation. He's the one who shakes the foundations of the earth that we walk on. Yet he himself will always remain unshaken. David not only separated himself to the Lord, but David loved the Lord. That's how he trusted in God. Our trust in the Lord shows how much we love God. Because when we love someone, we trust them. You cannot love someone if you do not trust someone. And so he loved to be in the presence of the Lord. He just wanted to be near God. David loved to be near him. He enjoyed his presence. Do we enjoy the presence of God? Because when we enjoy the presence of God, guess where we're going to find ourselves a lot of the time? We're going to seek to be in the presence of God. And you know what? You don't have to worry about falling. You don't have to worry about slipping or tripping or stumbling when you're in the presence of God. So through prayer, in his spiritual pursuits, as he studied and he, and he learned and he meditated on God's word, David just basked in the presence of God. That's where you find the presence of God. We're all waiting for this glorious thing where there's this bright light in the sky and, and maybe we feel warm and fuzzies around us. We go, man, I was in the presence of God. No, you're in the presence of God every time you choose to open your mouth and praises to the Lord, every time you choose to come before God in prayer and adoration, every time you open up his word and you say, God, speak to me, you are in the presence of God. And David loved the presence of God. In fact, David says, I love your house. Because it's where you dwell. It's where your glory is. David just wanted to be around God. He loved his presence. And our sure footing, it's found in the presence of the Lord. Those who love to be in his presence find themselves in it more often and most often. In the next psalm that we're going to look at, David writes this. He says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. What's the one thing that drives your life? 
What's the one thing that drives your desire? It's not to say that we can't have other things that we seek after, but what's the one thing we seek the most? What has priority in our life? Do you love the Lord and desire to be close? Do you love his house, the house of the Lord? Do you desire to be in his presence? How near are you to God? Maybe you're here tonight and you're like feeling like you've been separated from God. Sometimes we we get that way. Maybe something's going on in our life and we go, man, I feel like God is far from me. I don't feel his, his nearness like before. Here's the truth. The Bible teaches that God is as near to you as you want him to be. When we feel distance from God, he didn't go anywhere. We did. James 4, 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a promise. I can't tell you how many people that are less important than God, that if you try to come and make an appointment or hang out with them, they ain't got the time of day for you. But it says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He says, oh, wait, there's, there's my favorite person right there. Truth of the matter, we're all God's favorite people when we come to him on the basis of Christ. You know why? Because that's his son in whom he's well pleased. And when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're covered in his clothes, in his righteousness. And when the father looks at us, he sees his son in whom he's well pleased. David, he didn't desire the presence or the fellowship of evil or wicked. He didn't desire to share in their fate either. David doesn't want to act like them. He doesn't want to live like them. And he trusts that he does not share their fate. He trusts God. He knows that God has a destination for sinners who are unrepentant. And David says, I don't want any part of that. David didn't desire their company in life. And at the end of it, he still desires to remain separate from the sinners. And he trusts God. He trusts that God can separate him from other sinners. Do we trust that God can separate us? This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13, 30. The wheat and the tares. There's the children of God and they're the wheat. Then there's the children of the devil that he came in and planted right behind the farmer. And it was tares. And when they're first sprouted and when they're first looking, they all look the same. You can go through and try to pluck up the bad plants, but you might be pulling out the good ones. God says, we'll just let it mature. And at the end of the time, at the harvest time, we'll gather the weeds first into bundles and burn them. The wheat will be safe. The wheat will be saved. David trusts God. He trusts in his grace to redeem him. And he trusts in his ability of redemption. He declares that he lives in integrity. He's not saying, I live with integrity and therefore you must save me. He doesn't say that God owes him. David just claims to live with the integrity that in life he trusted God. And at the end of his life, as he faces that valley of a shadow of death, and as he's going into the next life, he trusts God still. That God's judgment will be just. That God's judgment will be good. And that God shows Grace to the redeemed. You see, the one who trusts God for salvation, that's the one who has sure footing. Job said, Let God weigh me on accurate scales, and he'll recognize my integrity. David in Psalm 7, the Lord judges the peoples 
Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. He's not lifting up his own righteousness and integrity, but he's, he's saying that he has righteousness and integrity because of God. The truth is, is in life, the road before us changes all the time. We don't get warning signs along the road. Sometimes it just happens to us. It becomes treacherous. We can lose our footing and we can slip. We have to be sure-footed that we continue to walk upright. We're sure-footed not because of ourselves. Our sure-footing comes because of Christ. You see, when the road becomes treacherous, you have to keep your footing by walking in integrity. It's not our own integrity. It's the integrity of faith in God, trusting God. Trusting God in all of it. Trusting to be guided by God. Trusting to be led by God's faithful love. Trusting to be living according to God's truth and God's truth getting us to where we're going. We keep our footing by being separate. We have to be separate from all ungodly examples, the ungodly wisdom, the ungodly culture, the ungodly habits, the ungodly fellowship. And instead, we separate and consecrate ourselves to God. Keeping our hands clean. We also have to work on keeping our hearts thankful. It's very easy to start being discontent with what God has given us, where God has brought us, where God is leading us. And that clouds our worship and that starts to bring us away from his presence. But as we practice being worshipful, even when we don't feel like it, we see something change because we're in his presence. You can't be changed outside the presence of God. And so we trust God. We seek to be in his presence. We want to be in his house. When you come to church, no matter what's going on in your life, what you're saying is, I want to be in the house of the Lord. There's no place I'd rather be. And when you come into the house of the Lord, what you're also saying is you desire to be not only among the Lord, but among the Lord's people. Know that he will separate from the sinners. Trust his grace and his redemption. There are many people that I know of that have given their life to Christ and they lead a miserable life because they doubt their salvation. They doubt God's ability to redeem. They doubt God's ability to separate those who trust in Christ from those who reject Christ. But sure footing in your life comes from one place alone. Christ alone gives us sure footing. You see, it's on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. And Father, we thank you so much for your servant David, sharing his heart, sharing his his um, struggles, Father, that they would be written down in your word and that you would keep and protect that word, that we would have the truth that we find in them, Father God. Not the truth that comes from the wisdom of man, but the truth that comes from the promises of you, God. Lord, you know how treacherous this, this life can be and you know the enemy that we have that seeks around like a roaring lion wanting to devour and destroy. The enemy who only seeks to come and kill, steal, and destroy. But from the beginning, Lord, you desired fellowship. You desired for us to find in you faithful love. Father, every step of the way, every single time we have failed and we have fallen and we have 
broken. God promises with you. You sought to establish your faithful love in a way that you would finish that work that was necessary to cleanse us and to give us that relationship with you. And it could never be undone. But it also couldn't be done. We, we, we can't find faith unless we come ourselves. You can't make us have faith. But you sent your son to die on the cross to complete all the requirements of righteousness, to give his life as a ransom for all of us, that in him we find forgiveness of our sins, cleansing of our sins, that we are no longer clothed in filthy, dirty rags of our own unrighteousness. But because of his blood that was spilt, we are clothed in his righteousness, which gives us sure footing as we stand before you. We thank you for that, Father God. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are listening, that are here tonight, that don't know the forgiveness of Christ, that can't walk through life on sure footing because they don't have Christ, Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to their heart, would reveal to them to call out and to declare that they need to be cleansed from their unrighteousness, from their sins, from their wicked desires that separate them from you. Lord, we can trust in you. You promised that any who come and call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. And Father, you've shown it time and time again in your word that you know how to separate those who are yours from those who are lost. Help us to not only trust you brand new for salvation, Father God, but those of us who have been in Christ, Lord, help us to once again trust in Christ alone for our sure footing as we walk through this life. We thank you for him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.